Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, January 28th. We begin with a discussion surrounding COVID-19 travel restrictions, specifically whether or not interprovincial restrictions should be implemented. We'll get the thoughts of Kelly Lee, Canada Research Chair in Global Health and Governance at Simon Fraser University. Next, we look at the important issue of mental health. While it's an issue we talk about more often these days, is there still a stigma surrounding it? We speak with a professor of psychiatry from Western University. And then we look at the resources available to women to escape domestic violence in our province. We hear details on a new collaborative project bringing together 300 community agencies to make a difference. And finally, we get the lowdown on this year's Black Achievement Awards. We speak with event coordinator and former Calgary Stampeder John Cornish on how this year's online ceremony will look. 909 on the morning news. Although non-essential travel is discouraged to international destinations, should we also be looking at cracking down on traveling between the provinces? With her take on the topic, we're joined by Kelly Lee, the Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance at Simon Fraser University. Good morning to you, Kelly. Good morning, Andrew. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. So uh, what what do we know as far as we know that it's effective to keep the international travel down as far as uh, the transmissivity of the virus? What about between the provinces? Do we see a bonus if, if that were to be the case? Yes. I mean, the data is, um, you know, patchy in terms of what's being collected. But we do know that the less people move around and the less people come in contact with each other in an unsafe way, you know, we're not spreading the virus around. We do know these new variants that are moving about didn't swim or walk here by themselves. They spread into the country and then across the country through travelers. So this is the big concern at the moment. You know, and and that certainly makes sense. And you would think it'd be just so simple to lock everything down. But, uh, you know, as we hear from our text line, even this morning, please don't do it. Businesses are suffering already. We can't afford to just keep locking everybody in their homes. That seems to be the consensus uh, this morning on our text line anyway. Yeah, we're in this repeat cycle. So in Canada, we've followed a strategy of virus suppression rather than getting to zero. So we keep the virus at bay and keep our healthcare system, um, you know, the capacity uh, not exceeded. But we haven't tried to get rid of the virus. So we've kept our borders um, open, actually. They're never, they've never been closed. People have still moved around for both essential and non-essential reasons. Uh, but we've kept that virus at a certain level. And that's why we keep having these lockdowns, open up lockdowns, keeping, you know, according to the numbers that we're seeing. And so other countries have gone for a policy of zero virus. And so they're able to create this kind of safe zone if you fortify or secure your perimeter within that area you can go about your daily life pretty normally and that's good for business as well so it's actually better for business because you have a kind of safe area where restaurants can stay open businesses can keep going Um, but we haven't done that here in Canada. Kelly the enforcement of uh, you know restrictions on international travel is easy in the sense that we have to have certain documents and obviously you're going to be flying from an airport Uh, but with the provinces between the provinces would that be just incredibly difficult to enforce a restriction like that? Yeah, I mean, logistically, it's very challenging. We don't have, you know, checkpoints between provinces, and hopefully we never will. The, the point, though, is if we reduce the non-essential travel through incentives or disincentives, really, that would be really helpful. Um, so requiring people who come into a province or a territory to 
quarantine and, you know, a very sort of strict quarantine, not just kind of an honor system, but yes, you have to show that you're in your, you know, a single dwelling or somewhere like a hotel or something, that will actually create a disincentive for people to travel unnecessarily. So that gets the numbers down. So the, the essential travel continues, but you, you then, you know, require them to isolate or quarantine as well, but there, there, there's some exemptions. So truck drivers, for example, coming through the province could get um, an exemption, they will probably, you know, they really should get vaccinated and then they can go about their essential work. But there's various things you can do. You don't have to, you know, build walls or create checkpoints. That's not what we're arguing for. Do you think that, the, you know, the testing do, being done at airports specifically is helpful? Is that enough where people have to test and then, you know, wait for so many days before they can go about doing whatever they're doing? Well, it helps because it's got the numbers down in terms of who's traveling. But, you know, in in terms of public health, it has some effect. But within the three days that you have the test, you know, people go back onto the beach or into their resorts and they mingle with people. They continue their holiday for three days and they got to get to the airport, into a taxi, uh, go to the airport lounge, whatever. So there's time to still get infected within those three days. Tests also don't catch every infection. There's lots of false negatives. People may not be, um, you know, may able to detect the virus in their system three days before. So that, there's all sorts of problems with that. Um, there's holes, so it's not a foolproof method. So, yeah, I mean, the, the ideal thing is everyone that comes into Canada internationally should quarantine. It should be, um, you know, closely, um, I guess, enforced. It's at an honor system at the moment. There's, there's very limited checks. And then whoever comes into a province um, should also do so. And in order to enable us to monitor it better, we need to get the numbers down first. The volume of people traveling still is too much for people to test quarantine contact trace. So it's overwhelming the system. Well, Kelly, can we, can we look at some kind of a compromise and say not a travel ban, but restrictions to be you know, proven to be essential? And I'm thinking about things like a funeral, a, a wedding, uh, things of that nature uh, versus going out to the cottage that happens to be in the next province. Yeah, you're touching on something really important. How do we define essential, non-essential? And, you know, of course, everyone thinks their travel is essential, you know. And, you know, with funerals and weddings, the unfortunate thing is that you're gathering with other people. And I, I totally get that, you know, there are humanitarian reasons why people should travel. And that probably should make the list if you're visiting a sick relative. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's, you have to be there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, whenever you try and assess risk, you also have to look at what the, what the behaviors are involved and what uh, risks are created. But, you know, we, we don't like to talk about a ban. A ban is taking away things from people. What we want to do is create incentives for people to behave a certain way. And I have to say, most Canadians are behaving in the right way. Mm-hmm. It's that small percentage that we're trying to get to that, you know, are still insisting on not really listening to the advice, strong recommendations. And unfortunately, that actually impacts on everyone else. I do like that, though, incentives as, as opposed to penalties. Thanks so much for joining us with your perspective. Thanks, Sue. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. That's Kelly Lee, Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance at Simon Fraser University. Got a few texts here, and this texture says, when was it decided we have to get to zero? Well, she mentioned that other other jurisdictions have that goal to get to zero, because I think there is this thought that, you know what, we can, with the hospitalizations down enough that the healthcare system can handle what we have coming at us, that that's the case. But uh, that was one example that she gave. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not ex- expected to get to zero here, according to uh, my knowledge anyway. Uh, other one uh, says here, 
uh, people have trouble with this. They want to look at a, a travel ban when we're bringing in USA citizens for the Bachelorette. <laughs> It's a story you brought yesterday at the Jasper yeah, Park Lodge. Really? Really? So There's the question. people upset about Absolutely that. Absolutely does. Uh, here's one saying, uh, interprovincial travel is easily tracked. Roads to BC from the Yukon have technology at entrance points to monitor and identify all vehicles. Since all Canadian and most U.S. motor vehicles databases are interconnected, uh, the Yukon knows exactly whose vehicle is entering. So, good point. It is it is trackable for sure, I, I did guess. not know that. I, I, did not know that I thought it would be a, you know somewhat of a gravel road. You just drive in. But that's not the case. This person here says interprovincial travel should not be banned until international traveling is, mm. in my humble opinion. And that's the one takeaway I get from the beginning of the pandemic. And it, it seemed to me that we were a little lacking when it came to the this the rapid closure of the borders to international travel and the just immediate uh, reaction. Other countries seem to do that a lot sooner than we did. And perhaps that uh, got us off to the wrong foot to begin with at the beginning of the pandemic. A couple more texts. Please know my wife and I are going to visit my parents in Saskatchewan in February with some big news. I'll eat any fines I get for traveling if I have to. And then, you know, opposite point. At this point, somebody says COVID is here to stay vaccine or not. We need her to learn. We need to learn how to live and deal with it and stop closing down businesses and borders. Let us make our own decisions, decide what level of risk we're comfortable putting ourselves at. Certainly some different opinions. Mm-hmm. If you have opinions on the potential for an interprovincial travel ban or anything we've covered this morning, send us a text at 403-974-8255. 642 on the morning news. Conversations around mental health have become more open and frequent throughout the years, but is there still a stigma surrounding it for those accessing our health care system? Dr. Javid Sukera, an associate professor of psychiatry at Western University, joins us now with his thoughts. Good morning to you, Dr. Sukera. Good morning to you. Thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, you know, yes, we, we talk about it more. It seems to be more in the open. Uh, I, I'd count that as an improvement. But as far as the stigma, uh, have we made progress uh, when it comes to stigmatizing mental health? Well, you're exactly right. I think we've definitely um, done a great job of making it less stigmatizing to talk about it and encourage people to ask for help. The problem is when people build up the courage and ask for help, and we built a system that gives them what they need, and I would say the answer is we haven't. I've worked in the Canadian system for almost a decade, and I haven't seen substantive change. People are on excessive waiting lists, there's major human resource shortages, and mental health care just isn't funded the same as other forms of health care. Can you compare it to other countries for us? Do you know? I mean, if we've got long waiting lists and the costs are excessive, are, are there other countries that are doing it better and we could take examples from them? Yeah, absolutely. So if we compare ourselves to other countries that uh, are from the Organization of Economic and Cooperative Economic Something Development, OECD, um, we're spending per capita about 7% of our healthcare spending on mental health, which is way less compared to places like um, uh, other countries where they're spending 10 to 11%. So Canada is way behind compared to other countries that are similar to us. Um, in places like Australia, we've seen huge pushes for increases, particularly for youth mental health, which is when uh, the first episode presents and when we can intervene early to help people from suffering for their entire lives. Dr. Zakara, where do we look for this improvement? Because I know it's interesting that if I have, you know, for example, an infection or something, I go to the doctor and, you know, within our healthcare system, I go on limited time so we solve the problem. But 
mental health it comes at a cost out of pocket depending on your benefits at your workplace for example is that what we need to do is to look at the structure of those resources and supports in our nation i would say no i mean i trained in the u.s system and in many ways we do not want a system where access to high quality mental health care requires uh, money to be able to pay or benefits to be able to pay it's a tragedy for me to have to tell my patients and their families that I know that the treatments that they need are available, uh, but they have to pay out of pocket. People simply can't afford the cost of, the, of this private treatment. And so I think our job as, as a nation that prides ourselves on our healthcare system is to ensure we're adequately investing um, in the Canadian system in mental health services, which means adequately investing in the people who provide those services with major shortages. We're stretching the same people um, thin because the demand keeps increasing. So we really need to make an investment in the system. Okay, so other than government and that sort of thing, how else can we break the stigma? How, how as we, you know, we as individuals, how can we help to break that, you know, that labeling, the stereotypes of, of somebody who might need to go for, for mental health counseling or, or get some help? I think um, really starts with a looking in the mirror at ourselves. We tend to see stigma as something that maybe other people might be exhibiting, and, and it's hard for us sometimes to accept that we too are a part of the problem. In the places where we work and the people that we interact with, we need to create the kinds of environments where people feel comfortable being vulnerable and people feel comfortable asking for help. A lot of times we might say that, but we may unconsciously through our attitudes or behaviors not create that kind of welcoming space. Well, what would you say to somebody, you know, who is, is suffering? And this is a very timely conversation because we're in the midst of the pandemic and it's January, the January blahs, everything. Perhaps you open that credit card bill from Christmas. Uh, people might be, you know, not feeling themselves, but they might be reticent to reach out for help because they don't want, you know, their, their coworkers, their family or their friends to judge them. What do you say to somebody like that who might be listening? Well, I would tell them that they're not alone that right now to be struggling or suffering is normal. There's nothing wrong with you. You didn't choose this and you deserve better. You don't have to suffer. The world might tell us that asking for help is a weakness, but asking for help is the bravest thing we can possibly do. And part of our ability to ask for help actually invites other people to have that courage so we can save ourselves, but also save each other. Very important message. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. You too. That is Dr. Javid Sukera, who is an associate professor of psychiatry at Western University. There's a new project co-led by Lana Wells, who's a researcher at the University of Calgary in the Department of Social Work, and it's bringing multiple community agencies together to help women escaping domestic violence. Lana joins us now to tell us all about the project called, is it Data or Data to Action? Uh, data to action and good morning. Data to action. Thanks for joining us, Lana. Appreciate your time. This is uh, an amazing initiative. So, uh, so we appreciate you being here. Can you tell us maybe some of the the numbers to really show us the size and the the how big this domestic violence problem is, not just in Calgary but across the province, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, Alberta has the third highest rate of police reported intimate partner violence in the country, and that comes after Quebec and Ontario. And actually, among all the provinces in Canada and territories, women in Alberta have the highest likelihood of experiencing 
physical assault and second highest for experiencing sexual assault after mm. the age of 15. Wow. And then, you know, you put the uh, something we talked about earlier on the program. This is important to address 365 days a year, but particularly this time and the wrinkles that the pandemic must mm-hmm. be throwing in. That must make it very challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, you know, the the forced to be in home, isolation, right, are all major contributors. And we are seeing uh, women's shelters in Alberta are seeing uh, more danger, higher danger assessments. So meaning uh, women that are coming in, higher risk of injury, fatality. Um, and so it's very, it's really amplified what's actually been happening in community. It's terrifying and it's time we get a handle on it and this collaboration may help to do that. Give us an overview of of what you're helping to put together here and how many agencies are involved. Sure, this is super exciting because we're working in partnership with an organization called Sagest who runs what they call a collective impact organization. And that organization has over 300 partners across Alberta. So those are agencies and systems like Alberta Health and others who've come together and have been working on domestic and sexual violence for years. But what's interesting is we've partnered up with Dr. Elena Turner, who's an old colleague of mine. Uh, she's running um, a, a company called Helpseeker, and it's a certified B Corps technology enterprise that's based out of Calgary. And so she's been really looking at data science, artificial intelligence, machine learning, but from a social impact perspective. And so we've worked with her and together um, we're analyzing all the different data sets coming in. So if you think about women's shelters or police or other organizations like counseling, they're all collecting data on people who are coming for help or searching for help. But also what we're now able to look at is Google Analytics, Twitter, and also HelpSeeker itself has um, an app that people can access called HelpSeeker. So I'd encourage anybody who's listening today, if they need to seek services, they can click on to just type into their browser HelpSeeker. And there you can navigate wherever you live in Alberta, services that are available for help. Wow. So, you know, all, all of a sudden... You know, whatever resources we've had, you've more than, you know, you look at uh, doubling and tripling them. This has got to be a real game changer, even compared to 10 or 15 years ago, uh, having these collaborations. Probably a lot of it has to do with the, the online world. Absolutely. And I think our sector and being a social worker for 25 years, um, we have not really dove into data science, artificial intelligence, machine learning, understanding algorithms for predictive analysis. So this is an area now we've all kind of pivoted to to better understand and to be able to use that kind of information to actually help people, Um, not to sell things to and not to harm them, but to actually provide supports and services. So lasting impacts of those who experience domestic abuse, I'm sure you've got lots of, uh, you know, facts and figures in there, but can I tell us what it's like for these women who are able to finally find a way out of these situations? Yeah, so, you know, domestic violence and sexual violence have lasting impacts. We're talking about PTSD and long-term trauma. It takes time to rebuild people's lives. Often they might be struggling with employment and holding down jobs addictions and mental health issues. We also know intergenerational trauma and sometimes even self-harm. Um, so a lot of issues when people experience sexual violence and domestic violence. And even once people leave and are able to find some safety, the work is continued. And I think another issue with that is governments and communities are often really focused on the short term or the crisis. But post-crisis, we need to really be supporting communities and individuals to heal. And sometimes that can take years and years. Uh, 
could take years, but you might take, have the first step today. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank goodness there's organizations like yours. And I, I, I guess that uh, preventdomesticviolence.ca is the best uh, way to go. I think if you're looking for, if there's someone out there who needs services, I would definitely click on to Help Seeker because they okay. can, wherever you are in Alberta, they can navigate and help you find services. I'd also go to Say Just, which is S-A-G-E-S-S-E. They have a lot of the services on there as well. And then, of course, call 911 if, if you're in a serious um, you know, a serious issue and you're experiencing a serious issue and you need help immediately. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Lana. Thank you so much. Have a great morning. You too. That's Lana Wells, University of Calgary Faculty of Social Work Researcher. 749 on the morning news. The 2021 Calgary Black Achievement Awards will be going ahead this year in a new way online. John Cornish, co-founder and president of the Calgary Black Chamber Society, and of course, one of our favorite former Calgary Stampeders, mm-hmm. joins us now with details on this year's event and why it may be, may be needed now more than ever. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, guys. Uh, thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, before we get to this year's edition and how they might be tweaked a bit due to the pandemic, give us a history of how these awards came to be and, and how many years they've been running. Yeah, so the Calgary Black Achievement Awards is it's in, in its first year. But Calgary has had two previous awards of, of a similar nature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had, in the 80s and you know, a little bit in the 90s, we had the, the Black Achievement Awards here in town. Um, and that was operated by actually some Calgary Black Chambers members um, that are now in their 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, sort of more recently, I think as, as recently as 2014, we had the Obsidian Awards here in town. And, and these were all doing the same thing, really highlighting and elevating uh, the best of, of black culture. Um, but, you know, that's both of those sort of just, you know, they tapered out, um, you know, maybe corporate support. You know, they were big events. Um, but we actually at the Chambers now uh, live in 2021. And technology is everywhere. Everybody has Zoom. Everybody has access to YouTube videos everywhere. Um, so it's actually pretty easy to set up an online event so we can do the same thing and carry in their tradition. John, we obviously here in Calgary see uh, every year really a more and more diverse population in the city. Why is it so important to, to recognize black achievement in this city and beyond? Yeah, no, I, and I think it's it's important to recognize across all cultures. I'm, I mean, I, uh, I, I, my wife is part of the Sikh community, and you know, we participate in a lot of their different events. Um, you know, and then I go to Chinese events. You know, it, it's every different cultural group ha- has a, a way to sort of uniquely um, uh, identify and sort of uplift their community. And, and I think we we chose the award ceremony because we thought that there was a lot of people doing a lot of good in this city. And we wanted to share their names. We wanted to put their names uh, front and center. So, so we thought that, you know, I, I thought personally uh, that, you know, this is just something that needs to happen. Uh, you know, we have 44, almost 45,000 black people in Calgary now. Um, you know, I think it's, it's about time people started hearing about all the great people we have in that community. Mm-hmm. John, it looks like you break it down to over 10 different categories. Uh, you know, the submissions had to be in, I believe, uh, what, a couple of weeks ago? Uh, awards on the 6th uh, of February. Uh, who decides who's, uh, you know, uh, worthy of, of winning these awards? Because, again, yeah. like, we have quite the population. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, the Calgary Black Chambers Board, as well as our uh, committee members, uh, had the opportunity to vote. So we actually had about 15 people um, doing the voting. 
Mm-hmm. And and we thought that uh, you know like bias was was a, was a big consideration that we had. I mean, you know, like we have a lot of uh, Black Chambers members, uh, like three hundred people, um, but we wanted to make sure that uh, we were considering the entire community. Um, so so we we really made sure uh, we were focused on you know what did they do. How good is their nomination? Uh, you know, like how how much community recognition do they already have in the community? You know, we consider all these things, and I, I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I am incredibly impressed by the by the winners, but the nominees are also incredible. There, it was just a listing of amazing achievements after amazing achievements, and so I'm very much looking forward to sharing both the nominations. And the winners. Fantastic. John, if folks are interested in finding out more information, maybe taking part in the virtual awards ceremony, calgaryblackchambers.ca is where they get all the details? That's it. Yep. We have an event page. You can just uh, go there. You can get your little calendar invite, and then that'll take you to the YouTube link uh, when that's up um, on the 6th. Yeah, we'll be watching for it on the 6th. Thanks so much for your time this morning, John. Hey, thank you both so much. Have a great day. You too. You too. John Cornish, co-founder and president of the Calgary Black Chamber Society.